Pray. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. That's where we'll be, so when I'm done praying, we can just jump right into the text. So Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, that's where we'll be this morning, and as you'll find out, we're going to be jumping around a little bit, proof texting this verse. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we are, we're grateful to be here. We're thankful for another Sunday to gather as the corporate body and worship you as the resurrected king of our lives. I thank you for the worship team and how they led us to the cross of Christ and for using Bill and the, the other worship leaders and the people playing instruments to just uh, point us to the grace of the gospel. And I'm thankful for this church and for what you're going to do today and for how you're going to show up. Lord, I know right now that I'm very weak and uh, I need you to come through. Uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that your grace is sufficient for me and your power is made perfect in weakness. I also know that Jesus said in John 15, 15 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remain in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. So Lord, in light of that truth, I cling to the cross. I cling to you and your spirit and ask you to do something profound, real, and miraculous in this time. May this not just be a, uh, a normal religious occurrence for us, but rather a deep, profound, worshipful time in your word. And we pray this prayer in the strong, mighty, matchless name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 30, pick up with me in verse five. So just one verse, small, but yet filled with power and implications for us today. The Bible says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. And he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Solomon says, not Simon, but Solomon says, every word of God, from the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the last verse, Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, proves to be true. But what about, uh, what about those tough scripture verses, Matt? You know, what about Philippians 2.14 that says, do everything without complaining or arguing? What about Luke 9.23 where Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What about that section of scripture in the gospels where Jesus says, if you don't love me more than your mommy and daddy, you're not worthy of being my disciple. The NIV renders this verse as every word of God is flawless. In other words, it's perfect. Now that's a pretty big deal. If you ask me, this means that no matter how uncomfortable it may seem or how counterintuitive it sounds, I need to obey and not just obey, but obey with joy and a smile on my face. This means that my entire life and your entire life should be swallowed up in this book that we call the Bible. But Matt, if this verse really means what you say it means, and that means the entire Bible is it's from God. If Proverbs 35 is legit and every word of God really proves to be true and is flawless, that means that God wrote it. How do you know that, Matt? How can you be so sure? If you know anything about me, you know I grew up here in the, the Triangle area. And uh, as a young lad, I went to Apex Baptist Church, good old ABC. Okay, if you were around ABC back in the early 90s, late 90s, you know that they had everything going on that a good old Southern Baptist could dream of. You know, I mean, they... They had vacation Bible school for the kids and youth group and discipleship classes and women's ministry events and, you know, a choir. They even had handbells. <laughs> to your surprise, I participated in handbells for a week before I exited the building as the weakest link, okay? They had everything. Now, if you were, if you were feeling super spiritual one week, you would show up to something called soul winning night, okay, about 
12 of the bravest warriors from ABC would show up in a very crowded room called the choir room. And we would sit there and talk amongst ourselves for a couple minutes. And the leader would come in. He would cast vision, share some testimonies, and then disseminate some surveys to us so that we could go out into the public and ask people some very awkward questions. Four specific questions on the survey. Number one, do you go to church? Yes or no? Number two, if you go to church, what church do you go to and what attracted you to that church? Number three, if you don't go to church, what are some things you'd be looking for in a local church? And then lastly, the granddaddy of them all, if you died tonight, if you got hit by a train, or if you got murdered, would you? That's not really the way they worded it. (laughs) I'm just adding a little bit of content, you know, for comic relief. If you died tonight, would you be 100% sure that you would go to heaven? So just picture us, okay? All 12 of us getting in our vans and in our cars and going to different places all throughout the city. Some people would go knock on doors. Others would go to local parks. If you were like me, you would go to Cary Town Center, okay, and talk to the, the crazy folk there, okay? I, I would venture to say that some people saw me there every week. That they, When they saw me, they just ran in the other direction because they knew I was the guy with the survey who was going to ask them some pretty awkward questions. So I remember one night, At the tail end of the event, I saw a man dressed in just just decked out in black, whole nine yards, trench coat, long black hair, black mascara. I mean, you know, just dressed in black, right? My flesh was like, Matt, I don't think you need to go talk to that guy. But my spirit in me was like, you need to to go approach him, go over the survey, and then share the gospel with him. I don't know about you guys, but ever since the Lord saved me by his grace, the Holy Spirit... He talks to me. Now, some of you might be kind of wigged out right now. What do you mean by that? I'm not necessarily saying, Matt, you need to go 100 yards. And, you know, I'm not saying I audibly hear his voice, but I know when he's leading me to do something. So by the grace of God, I don't always obey. But in this particular situation, I did. I walk over to this man dressed in all black, and I said, hey, can I, can I talk to you for a couple of minutes? He said, sure. So I go through the four questions, and then instead of sharing the gospel with him, I just say, okay, man, thanks for your time. Um, I'm going to go now. Um, Have a nice night. To my surprise, this guy said, Matt, before you go, let me ask you a question. And he said, "How, how do you know that the Bible is true? I mean, I can tell that you're a Christian. I can tell that you, you love Jesus and you want people to understand the Bible based upon some things that you said during the survey. But how do you, how do you know? Like, give me some type of rationale and argument for why I should believe this book. I know you believe it, but why should I believe it? And I looked at him and I said, uh, uh, um, um, the Bible is true because um, um, God wrote it. And he said, well, how do you know God wrote it? And I said, well, uh, 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 because the Bible says so. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says all scriptures God breathed. He said, well, how do you know that that verse is true? And I said, well, uh, 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 because it's in the Bible. He said, well, how do you know the Bible's true? Uh, uh, because God wrote it. <laughs> we kind of went back and forth, you know, for a couple minutes. You know, I left that night realizing that many people in our world today, perhaps some of you, are looking for a deeper answer. You want a stronger rationale and argument for why 
you should really believe Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and buy into the truth that every word of God from cover to cover is reliable and is indeed the inerrant, infallible word of God. Back in biblical times, people were asking the same question, and they were doubting the authenticity of the Scriptures. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter actually responds to a claim that his preaching about the authenticity of the Bible was a bunch of malarkey. I want to read this to you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It should be up on the screen for you. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, this isn't a myth. We didn't, we didn't come up with this. We were there, he shouts. Like we were there and we saw with our very own eyes when Christ's earthly ministry commenced. We were there when he performed miracles. We were there when he casted out demons. We were there when he baptized folks. We were there when he loved the marginalized. We were there when he reached out to the poor. We were there when he was tempted yet remained victorious. We were there when he called us. We were there when he predicted his own crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. And we were there after he resurrected from the grave. We're not making this stuff up, we were eyewitnesses, Peter says. Now, one common objection out there, and perhaps some of you have this, is that the Bible was developed by a lot of early followers who kind of just came together after the crucifixion of Jesus and said, okay, let's come up with this fable or this myth to promote our own agenda or our own name. If you've read The Da Vinci Code or watched the movie, you know that this is precisely Dan Brown's premise, okay? So in light of that common objection this morning, I want to give you guys four reasons why you should really buy into Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. So the first half of this sermon is going to be a little bit intellectual and educational, and then the last bit will be a time for me to really engage your hearts in a pastoral, practical way and push you to dive into this book and really believe it as the Word of God. So four reasons I would encourage you to take notes. Number one, the timing of the Gospels in the New Testament letters is way too early for this book to be a myth. Okay, according to the majority of scholarship, both secular and Christian, most letters, the Gospels and the Pauline epistles and other letters in the New Testament were penned about 30 to 50 years after the resurrection of Christ. And as you study these letters, you'll see that the authors literally challenge skeptics and doubters in the city to go and talk to people that they bring up in the letter to vouch for what they're saying. Let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, Mark says this, and again, this is um, prior to Christ being crucified on the cross, so Jesus is moments away from his death. He's moments away from dying for the sins of the world. The text says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it and they crucified him. Now, why, why not just say Simon carried his cross? Why all the details about Simon being the daddy of, of these two men called Alexander and Rufus? Because Mark wants any doubters or skeptics to literally walk over to Alexander and Rufus's house, knock on the door and say, Yoo-hoo, uh, I'm investigating Christianity myself and I just got this letter and I'm reading it, and it says that your daddy carried the cross of Jesus. Can you vouch for this? Is this indeed true? 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, an, is another example here. If you know this chapter, you know that Paul provides the most succinct definition of the gospel. He talks about Jesus coming for us, dying for us, and then resurrecting for us. And then after he talks about the resurrection, he goes on to, to, to mention all these people who literally saw Christ after he rose from the grave. He says he appeared to the 12, and he appeared to these people, and he appeared to Peter, who's also called Cephas, and he appeared to me. And then he says he appeared to 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive. Now, why include that nugget of truth? Because he wants any people in the city of Corinth who are doubting the legitimacy of Corinthians to Go and try and find some of these 420-odd people and say, hey, listen, I just got this letter. It's been circulating around our city. And I got to tell you, if it's true, if Jesus really resurrected from the grave, then I'm all in. Because I know that he predicted his resurrection. And if it really came to pass, I'm going to worship him as Lord. And not just as some good prophet or great teacher, but I'm going to bow down and give him my everything if it is indeed true. Think of it this way. Let's say that in 30 years I come out with a book called Mark Zuckerberg is a Liar. Okay, and the premise of the book is Zuckerberg didn't really come out with Facebook in his Harvard dorm room, but, uh, but I did. You know, and I go on to say that he doesn't deserve any money or notoriety or fame. I do. Do you think that my book would gain instant credibility like the Gospels and the New Testament letters and the Bible did? No, because there would be eyewitnesses around who could literally, if they wanted, if they were naive enough to even open the book, they could, you know, call Facebook headquarters and say, hey, is this, is this Matt Hahn guy legit? Is he true? Did he really come up with Facebook.com in his Liberty University dorm room? So that's reason number one. Timing of the Gospels, way too early for this to be legend. Number two, the content in the Bible is far too counterproductive for it to be a myth. So you would expect, track with me here, you would expect that if the disciples are trying to create some myth or fable or legend, that they would do three specific things. Number one, they would paint the main character as some superhero, like a William Wallace. Freedom! Jack Bauer. You know, or Superman type of guy. Number two, you would assume that they would puff themselves up and talk about all their great victories and diminish any of their struggles or shortcomings. Number three, you would assume that they would avoid any culturally offensive content. I mean, if they're trying to promote their own agenda in their own name, you... Sure, they would do that, right? But that's not what you see in the scriptures. For example, why, why do you see Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion just sweating drops of blood, crying out to his father, Lord, Lord, if there's any other way for me to execute your mission, please let me know because I'm not really feeling the cross. Why, why paint Christ as a criminal? Why paint the main character as a criminal? If you want to promote your own agenda and, and have your letters and your stories really impact the masses. You got to remember back in Roman times, if you died on a cross, you died as a criminal. Additionally, why, why do you see the disciples as a bunch of buffoons on pretty much every page in the New Testament? Why do they highlight their insecurities, their hangups, and all their problems? And lastly, why do you see women at being the first witnesses of the resurrection? Back in biblical times, a woman's testimony wouldn't even hold up in court. A Jewish man, historians say, would pray three things on a consistent basis. Lord, I'm thankful that I'm not a Gentile. I'm thankful I'm not a slave. And I'm thankful that I'm not a woman. Again, the content in here is far too counterproductive for this thing called the Bible to be a myth. You can believe it as the inerrant, flawless word of God. Let's keep going. Number three. 
the literary form of the Bible is just, it's way too detailed. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors and someone that I probably quote too much, says, I have been reading poems, legends, and myths my whole life, and I know that none of them are like this. So for years and years, Lewis studied fictional accounts, and he came to the conclusion that fiction, at least back in the early centuries, didn't include meticulous details about certain events. That's why if you read Beowulf, Beowulf, anybody? Okay. Yeah, me either. If you read that book, you won't, you won't read about someone seeing the rain outside the window. And you won't read about someone sighing and eating three pieces of toast before they fall asleep. Those details are not included because that's the way literature worked back then as fiction. Okay, let me give you some scriptural support here. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 38. The text says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. Why the details? Because the Bible is faithful, inerrant, flawless, and it's not fiction. Give you another example. In John chapter 21, this is post-resurrection, okay? Jesus is strolling on the beach, and he sees some fishermen out in a boat, and they're having some bad luck. Anybody in here fish and have bad luck perpetually like me? Okay. So Jesus shouts out, hey, you guys, over there, okay? Yeah, pay attention. I'm Jesus, okay? I just resurrected from the grave. Yep. If you want to catch some fish, Throw your net on the other side of the boat. Immediately, these men say, sir, yes, sir. I mean, wouldn't you, if you saw Christ post-resurrection, if he asked me to jump, I would say, yeah, how high? You predicted the fact that you would be crucified and then resurrected, and you actually did it. So, yeah, I'm going to throw my net on the other side of the boat. They do that, and the text says that they caught 153 fish. Not 1,000, not 100 But 153, why all the detail? Because it's truly the word of God. It's not fiction. Reason number four, the apostles' message was too costly for the Bible to be a myth. You guys know what the disciples gained for following Christ? Sure, they gained joy and peace and friendship with God and many lessons under the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth, but they also gained D-E-A-T-H, death. To be more specific, they gained martyrdom. The majority of scholarship say that almost all of the disciples died martyrs' death. And the only one who didn't was John. And he was boiled in a pot of water only to be miraculously saved and then write the book of Revelation. So that begs the question, why would they, why would they die for a lie? Like if it's a myth, if every word of God doesn't prove true, and if Solomon is just in left field, and if God really isn't a refuge for those who, who hide in him, what? Why would they die? If it's not true, if this book isn't legit, why would they give their lives for it? Historians say that Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword wound. 
Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. And we complain about the carpet and the coffee not being the temperature that we want it to be. Lord, forgive me. Luke was hanged by idolatrous priests on an olive tree in Greece as a result of his tremendous preaching to the lost. Peter was crucified upside down because he believed he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner that Christ died. Quick side note, the day before Peter died, his wife was crucified. And according to historians, his last words to his wife was, remember Christ. James the Just, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown over 100 feet down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. When they discovered that he survived the fall, his enemies beat him till he died. With a f- James the Greater was ultimately beheaded at Jerusalem. Bartholomew was martyred for his preaching in Armenia when he was flayed to death by a whip. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Patras, Greece. After being whipped, pay attention here, severely by seven soldiers, they tied his body to the cross with cords to prolong his agony. His followers reported that when he was led toward the cross, Andrew saluted it in these words, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it. He continued to preach to his tormentors until two days later he died. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during one of his missionary journeys there. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death at Salonica. And Paul was tortured and then eventually beheaded by the Roman evil emperor Nero in AD 67. So again, that all begs the question, why would they die for a lie? Oh, but people die for lies all the time. Just consider the people who flew the planes into the World Trade Center. They died for a lie. You're you're right. People die for lies all the time. But we need to make an important distinction right now. People do not die for what they know is a lie. They don't. Think of it this way. Let's say that, that you guys hire a pastor here on staff. We'll give him the name... Sam Young, okay? And three weeks into his tenure here as one of the pastors, he tragically gets hit by a car and he dies. And some of you get together and you think to yourself, well, let's, let's create a myth or a story about Sam Young. After his death, three days later, let's say he resurrected from the grave. And let's begin telling people that Jesus really isn't the Messiah and that Sam Young deserves to be worshiped. We know it's a lie and that's fabrication, but let's just do it to see if we can gain some, some notoriety and popularity. So you do. And you march throughout the city, throughout this church. Sam Young is savior of the world. Forget about Jesus. It's all about Sam. And eventually the government officials here in the city get wind of what you're doing and all the chaos that, that you're causing and they show up on your doorpost. And they look at you and they say, if you don't stop, proclaiming Sam Young as the Savior and the Messiah, we are going to kill you. You need to recant right now. What would you do? You would recant. Why? Because you know what you're promoting is a lie. Pascal, a philosopher in the 17th century, said that at the end of the day, I believe in eyewitnesses who had their throats cut. And I do too. I do too. Now, whether, whether or not you believe it, whether or not you can say, yep, Proverbs 35 is legit. Every word of God 
is flawless, that's up to you. You've got to make that decision. God hasn't created you as a robot. He doesn't doesn't force you to do things. You've got to make that choice. And you can't be like a halfway follower of, oh, you know, kind of. Some things are true. No, it's all or nothing. But if you land at believing the Bible as the authoritative, inerrant word of God from cover to cover, the, the last thing that you should do, the last thing that I should do is leave this book on our shelves Monday through Saturday only to maybe open it up for 35 minutes when the preacher preaches a sermon on Sunday morning. But that's what we do as American Christians, right? I mean, that the, the average American Christian reads their Bible and studies the scriptures less than five minutes a week. That's what we do, right? I mean, we show up, we walk into church. Oh, hey, how you doing? You guys doing what? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, great. Okay. We, we, we go and sit down in some nice, comfy chairs, right? We stand when they tell us to stand. We sing a couple songs. We pray a couple prayers. We maybe participate in communion. And then we sit down. We open our Bible, maybe on a good day, or open our iPhone app. And we listen for 35 minutes. And then we throw this book in the backseat of our car or leave it on our bookshelf. We just push it aside. I mean, we, we know the news, new, like, news sta- like news articles. Like we're more familiar with what Fox News says and CNN than what the Bible says. We are more familiar with the trends of the stock market than the trends that we see permeating through the Scriptures. We are more well-versed in our favorite sports team statistics than in the infallible, inerrant word of God that proves to be true and is timeless. Let's just be real. I mean, we are, right? Can you, can you guys see that like something is, something is broken and wrong with us? We have allowed our culture to dictate the way we serve Christ and view Christianity and not the Bible. And this is so serious. This should not be the case. For to reject the word of God is to reject Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the word in written form. You know, one of my favorite stories in the, in the Bible is the story of Nehemiah. And I think, I think you guys actually walked through this story not too long ago. Nehemiah was a man's man, a man who was called by God to vision cast and lead a reform in the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 6, it says that after Nehemiah persevered through trials, assembled a team, delegated tasks, his team finished the wall, the temple wall, in 52 days. And then after they were done, Guess what they did? They, they begged Ezra to stand behind a podium, perhaps something like this, and just read the Bible. They said, just read it, Ezra. And the text says that he read it from early in the morning to midday, perhaps five hours or so. And then the next day, the text says that they gathered again in the temple, and they stood and read themselves individually from the Bible for a quarter of the day. You guys are smart. Six hours. 
they just, they all stood and for six straight hours because they were enamored by the glory of God and the, the weight of this book, they just read it. And they were completely cool with that. Now, what would we say? Oh, that's, that's boring, Matt. That's not creative. Give me, some, give me some lasers. Give me some lions. Give me, give me some, some light show. All you're going to do is just read the Bible? That's all you got? He's read for six hours. They were content with the word. And they found their nourishment from the word. And the word became their life. It wasn't a part of their life. It was, it was their life. And the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 15, verse 16, I found your word. I love this. And I ate your word. And your word became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. No wonder why thousands of Christians living in America are without any joy. No wonder why your marriage never seems to get any traction. No wonder why you're not being spiritually productive. No wonder why you don't want to volunteer and help the church. No wonder why you don't want to give. No wonder why you come in here and you can't really get into the songs. No wonder why you have no passion for God's glory and the things of God. You're just not, you're not in this book. Notice what Jeremiah said. So I found your word, I heard it, and I ate your word. And when he internalized it when, it, when it went from up here to really deep down in his soul, then he said, the word became the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Now listen, I know that I might seem a little over the top, and I know some of you are like, who in the world are we bringing in? This, this guy's crazy. I'm just really <laughs> uber passionate about biblical Christianity and calling God's people to it. Because I know the last thing you need is another feel-good sermon. There's nothing wrong with encouragement and letting you know that God loves you. He does. He's gracious toward you. Some of you are like, man, I feel really convicted right now. You need to know that God's love for you hasn't changed at all. Even though you've neglected this book, he, he loves you. He loves you more now than he ever has. There's nothing wrong with giving you a spiritual pat on the back. But the last thing you need is seven steps to a greater life. The last thing you need is soft preaching. Well, you know, don't worry about your sin. Okay, it's okay that you're not committed to the church. And that's not a big deal that you're not giving of your tithes and offerings. And yeah, don't worry about living on mission and reading the Bible. I mean, that's just for those really radical Christians out there. You know, those who are really into Jesus, folks. This isn't radical Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. We have elevated what's in the Bible to some radical, oh, that's only for a select, no, this is for every believer who deems Christ as a Savior and Lord. 
It is God's will for you to make this book your life and to feast on it. And just think of it this way. I mean, if you, if you neglect the scriptures, if you say, no, I'm, I don't really need that, that's akin to you living your physical life without eating any meals. And who, anybody? Anybody go throughout life? Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not going to eat breakfast or lunch or dinner for five years. So I know, I know some of you are here right now and you're, you're eager uh, to, to apply what the Lord is working in your heart. So I want to, by way of application, give you guys four steps to consider right now. Number one, start, start reading the Bible yourself. Okay, begin in the book of Matthew and the Gospels and study the life and ministry of Jesus and ask yourself the question, how can you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, implement, em, emulate the character of Christ? So start there. Number two, allow the word of God to read you. So don't just open it up and read it, but allow the scriptures to, to read how you're doing spir- spiritually. So when you come to a text, perhaps in James chapter 1, verse 2, and you read, Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith pr- pr- produces perseverance. Instead of going on to verse 3, stop right there and say, Lord, I'm struggling with that right now. And, and there are trials in my life that I'm complaining about, and I know that, that you want to work your will in me in the midst of those trials, so help me to consider them as a joyful opportunity to depend on you. So allow the word to read you. Number three, memorize the word. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. All throughout the Gospels, you see Christ quoting scripture when he was tempted. If Christ quoted scripture, how much more should we? It's people who struggle with sin. And lastly, I want to encourage you guys to view the Bible in every word in this book as avenues for your own joy. Let me illustrate it like this. Not too long ago, I took all my kids. I've got three girls, okay? So a lot of Barbies, princess activity, and stuff like that going, out, going on in my house. And Frozen, Let It Go. And we've probably sung that song at least 100 times in the past six months, okay? So I'm at home with all of them, right? My wife is out running some errands, and I'm getting a little bit of cabin fever. Okay, the girls are starting to go a little bit crazy. So I take them to the pool. All three of them with daddy. Not a good idea, okay? And uh, after about five to seven minutes or so, they're hungry for a snack because they're always hungry every five minutes, you know? You got, parents, you guys struggle with that? Or is it just me? Okay. Um, so I take them out of the pool and uh, we start eating our snack. And then within a couple minutes, Anna just kind of throws her plastic bag on the ground and starts running toward the pool. Keep in mind, Anna's four years old and she doesn't know how to swim. While she's running to the pool, she's starting to say to herself and to me, Daddy, I'm going to jump in the pool and swim. I know how to swim. This is going to be fun, Daddy. And I mean, just, she's just kind of waddling, you know, like she does toward the pool. What do I do? I get up out of my seat, chase her down, look at her and say, Honey, I, I love you. I know that you think you can swim because Abigail can swim now, but you can't swim. If you want to go into the pool, you need to go with your daddy. And I hold her hand, walk her back to the table, and I say, honey, do you, do you understand this? And what do you guys think she said? Oh, yes, sir, no problem. Yeah, I understand everything that you're saying. Oh, yes, 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 daddy. No, she did not respond in that way, okay? She, she begins to weep and just hyperventilate uncontrollably. Daddy, I, I, I can do it. I can, I can swim. I can't believe you're not letting me swim. I mean, this goes on for about five minutes or so. Here's the point. My kids at this stage of their life, especially the younger ones, have a difficult time connecting my commands with their joy in development and maturation as children. 
They don't see my commands as avenues for their joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. So they buck them. No, I don't want to do that. You're telling me that I need to live this way so that I can feel like a slave. I want to do my own thing. You know, as believers, a lot of times I feel like we struggle with the same thing. When we, when we come to uncomfortable topics in Scripture and when we're pushed out of our comfort zone and when we read a particular verse or section of Scripture in the Bible, we buck it. We say, no, that can't be for my good. That can't be for my benefit. It is so vital for us as believers to remember that every word in this book from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 was not written just for God's glory, but it was written for our joy. Which means if you want joy, that's different than happy. If you want a, a deep, real feeling of contentment in Christ regardless of the circumstances, if you want that, You've got to commit yourself to this book. You've got to dive into this like you have never dived into it before. It needs to be your everything. It needs to consume you for all of your days until Jesus takes you home. Now again, I can't stress this enough. I, I know that the Holy Spirit's convicting right now. He's been convicting me throughout this entire sermon because I fail here. And a lot of times I'll sermon prep, you know, I'll prepare for my sermon on Sunday, but I won't really eat from this book. May I remind you that God is gracious, he's loving, he's slow to anger, and regardless of where you are, he wants to give you a new start today. So there needs to be a moment after you dive into the word where your head's down in confession and humility perhaps even tears flowing down from your face. If I go back to the story of Nehemiah in chapter 9, after they read from the Bible for about 11 straight hours total, there was a time for about six hours where they just confessed their sins in sackcloth and ashes. So there needs to be a time of conviction where our head's down. And we're like, Lord, woe is me. I'm the worst sinner of all, like Paul said in 1 Timothy. But then there needs to be a time where our head goes up. And we say, if God's for me, who can be against me? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I'm a mess. Yes, I fall short. Yes, I stiff arm your word, but I'm your child. And when you look at me, you look at me through the lens of your son's righteousness. So today, may it be a day where your head's down, perhaps for an hour, but may your head go up, knowing that if you know Christ, he's gracious toward you and he loves you. And even if you're here, if you don't know Christ, the invitation is Christ came for you, he died for you, and he rose for you, and he wants you to know him. He wants you to be saved by his miraculous grace. The Lord's tugging on your heart right now, and you want to know Jesus, the biblical Jesus, I would encourage you after the gathering to go find a pastor or one of the elders here and talk to them. I love you guys. Thank you for the great opportunity that I've had today just to preach the word. Um, I'm indebted to you. So let me pray. Lord, I love you. Um, I thank you for your scriptures that uh, prove to be true. Lord, every word of God is, is flawless. And Lord, I know that um, many people don't, don't buy into that. 
And I pray, Lord, that if they're wrestling with the, the authenticity of the word and whether or not they should really live their lives according to this book, that you would, you would give them the strength to kind of step over that line of uncomfort and say, I'm all in for you. I still have questions and doubts, but Lord, I believe that you're bigger than my questions and doubts, and I rest in you. Lord, I pray that now as we enter into a time of singing, that if anyone needs to just sit and be still, that they would do that and that they would find cleansing from your son Jesus. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So Lord, we've all been spiritually lazy. We all need your forgiveness. So give that to us and compel us to be more faithful, committed followers of your holy scriptures.